Welcome back, and here we go for another episode of FileMaker Talk. Wow. It's a circus. Welcome to the circus, <laughs> the Matt and Matt show. Come on, dude. You were shaking your head. I can see you on video. Nobody else can see uh, no. see me on video, but I can see you on video just uh, laughing at me like, come on. It's true. What's I up like with that intro? <laughs> nice, nice work. We're using new production techniques here. You got special effects and everything, right? Oh, I do. Yes. Thank you for actually uh, for having created that. And I need to give myself a little golf clap. There. Oh, yeah. That is a golf clap. Is that actually what it's called? Totally <laughs> polite little. Well, that's what I called oh. it on my little soundboard. A birdie. Oh, rescue takes off with a third fairway. So I, I, didn't, I, didn't mean, I didn't mean to cut you out. Uh, go ahead and do your welcome <laughs> to FileMaker Talk. Go ahead no, no, no. That's, that's that. fine. That was our good welcome intro right there. <laughs> Let's just dive into our, our content. We've got several things we're going to talk about. We're going to touch on selector connector and why people are mystified about graph changes. Also, uh, the V9 update and the, mm-hmm. a little bit of the mystery behind security in that regards. Mm-hmm. And a couple of, it's not FileMakers even. Well, why don't we start off with those? All right. All right. So let's segue. (laughs) (laughs) Funky. All right. So what do you got, Matt? Here's what I got uh, uh, as I embark on this next chapter of my life as a single man. Um, uh, Although, you know, not, not really. This is exactly single because I've got a you know good advancing going. advancing, <laughs> but like let's just say let's just say apartment living, city living, making be responsible for my own dinner most of the time. I'm learning to cook, and and um, a really nice thing to do when you're cooking dinner is listening to music, and listening to music on you know typically we haven't had like in the last twenty years as I've been doing it anyway. Music kind of goes through TV or through your computer, but don't, people don't really have a stereo set up like we used to when we were kids, remember? Right, yeah, yeah. So like in my kitchen area, I set up these speakers that I've had for a really long time, and I actually bought a record player, which is the first time I've had a record player in 32 years, I think. Uh, I sold all my records in 1983, so I guess, yeah, 32 years. And so the reasoning for this was? Well, I just wanted to kind of do something different and and not have, you know, digital music and and put the emphasis on putting on a record, listening to an entire side of a record in order while I'm making dinner. And then, you know, washing my hands in the middle of it and turning the record over. And how do you find that? Because I've seen on Facebook, I've seen a couple of uh, revival posts where one I saw somebody had made a record player out of Legos. Oh, nice. A real record player. And then another one I saw that um, it was an article about people going back and starting to collect and play old records. There's something mm-hmm. about the nostalgia of going back to the past that people want to, you know, relive that. Well, that is an ex- an aspect for sure. There's a record store right on my walk between my office and my house and you can get a used record for 2 3 bucks. And you can listen to a record or you buy a record that you had when you were a kid that you don't have digitally or maybe you know it would be hard to get or you wouldn't you wouldn't just go plunk 10 bucks for it on the iTunes store or even 8 bucks but if you can get a record for 2 listen to it a few times and go back to the record store for a buck that's a good deal yeah, it works um, and so that like the the value aspect is one thing although i have to say buying a brand new record like if you wanted to buy new releases they're $18 or more 
So it's actually quite a bit more to buy. Like when, when an artist that you like comes out with a brand new record, like one of my favorite guitar players is Robin Ford. Uh, and he just came out with a new record and I bought it in vinyl the first week it was out and it was like 18 bucks. Wow. Um, which includes the digital download. So, but still, uh, I don't know. So <clears throat> well, I'm doing that, really good with Spotify. Yeah. I use Spotify. I use a lot of the other, uh, some of the other internet radio. I don't really use the iTunes radio. I've got a huge collection of songs on, um, on my computer and on my phone. Uh, but I, I don't know, just something about, um, like in music, when you, you know, when I was writing music, it's more about what is you don't have. Like the limitations are actually the important thing to make art, not the the mass capability. So having a million songs at your fingertip is actually kind of a downside because it means you're not going to ever listen to track three of the record. If if what your goal is is to just you know kind of be limited a little bit and putting a record in a groove and listening to these five songs in this order, I don't know. There's just something nice about that. Simplicity, man. It's limiting yourself to simplicity. I'm not going to go on and on about how records sound vastly better, uh, but they really sound great. <laughs> and I did, I did some A and B tests of listening to the exact same record on digital versus uh, the record, and it, it is different. I mean, it's definitely different. Nice. So that's my It's Not FileMaker. And I, I think really the thing there is <clears throat> hook up a stereo and find some time to actually listen to music more than it is the, the record thing, I think. I like music. I just listened to a new album on Spotify that I liked. Yeah, what'd you get? Listen to the song, like, I don't know, probably like 15 times in a row. Once you find, you know, when, you, when one song hits you and you're just like, oh, that's an awesome song, and you just play it over and over until you get the burnout. Yeah, I don't do that. Uh, I do that. <laughs> Two or three, maybe. <clears throat> What's uh, your It's Not FileMaker? My It's Not FileMaker is um, getting off of dynamic content management systems. Uh, we had talked briefly before we uh, hit the record button here, and you were mentioning uh, Drupal, and I've used Drupal ever, uh, gosh, as far back as I can. Before Joomla became Joomla, it was, uh, I forget what the name of it was, but I've been using it for a long time. And I have started to stop using it, actually. Um, well, actually, I, I still use it. The, the magazine site fully runs on Drupal, and it is an amazingly powerful system. But for all of the other uh, websites that I was managing that was also running Drupal, when I finally sat down and said, these websites are just based on information, people just want to get the information. They are not interacting. They're not logging in. They're not doing anything interactively with the website they're just consuming i said mm -hmm. this is crazy i don't need to every content management system that's built on it doesn't matter what it's built on if it's anything open source then typically it's got holes somewhere or something that somebody can find out that mm -hmm. okay this module wasn't updated this is a hole into my system and so it's hackable so i said this is crazy if all they want is the information i'm just going to put up html pages so there's a program that i've used for a long time called rapid weaver which is a Mac application, which allows you to basically compose absolutely beautiful HTML5 websites, and you can purchase themes for on, they're pretty much cheap. I mean, it is crazy. The Rapid Weaver theme market only charges like $30 to $40, where the Drupal, getting a Drupal theme or a Joomla theme is going to cost you a couple hundred dollars. Um, if you go to Template Monster or something like that, it's just mm -hmm. pretty crazy. And you basically compose all of your information. 
it fits within whatever theme you purchase, and then you just push it up. So, yeah, FTP, HTML, non-hackable. Yep. Simple, fast. Yep. So, what about WordPress, which is like the the, the huge one now? Well, WordPress is it's a content management system. It's in PHP. It's just like anything else. If you install plugins or enhancements or add-ons and you don't keep up on those, mm-hmm. then of course it can be hacked. And in fact, you you go uh, search for I don't know WordPress hack or WordPress you know fail. You're going to find people that have been hacked because of things that they've installed. And even mm-hmm. if you don't keep WordPress up uh, up to date, unless you've actually or if you're using the hosted version of WordPress which is nice when somebody else manages it for you, mm-hmm. then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it's built in. Somebody somewhere, if the code is exposed, can find a hole. And if it's exploitable, then a few people will find out beforehand and they'll take advantage of it. And then eventually it'll become known and then it'll be solved. But it's a continual, it's a continual chase to chase the fact that somebody's going to find a, some way in and then you have to solve it it causes you downtime, and if all you're putting out there is information, nothing beats HTML. You can't hack it. It's just text. Mm-hmm. So, all right, I like it. That's my. It's not FileMaker. Go back so, to simple, simple <clears throat> records, simple. simple HTML. I like it. All right. Speaking of simple, yeah. Oh boy, here we go. Come on. Why? What happened to FileMaker 13 v6, 7, and 8? <laughs> um, we went from v5 to v9. I was actually talking about this with Joey the other day. He said, why is it V9? Wasn't it just V5? Yeah. Uh, they just wanted to bring all of the numbers up in line. And that's probably under the premise of the security aspects that happened with uh, the server certificates. And so they're probably, okay, if FileMaker Go is at 3.08 and FileMaker Advanced oh, is true. at V5, mm-hmm. and we're bringing server up to something well let's just make go v9 let's make uh, advanced and you know regular pro v9 let's make it all v9 so that we know that all of these deal with our current addressing of the security issue in my firemaker career i've never seen a v9 i've never seen that many releases i guess there really hasn't been that many though but i've never seen the number get that high of course with filemaker go i mean with with any um, Go application, you kind of expect updates really regularly. A lot of some, some applications actually have a two-week update schedule. Yeah, I've seen them in the little app thing. I, I actually eventually put it on the auto, and so I now just get notified of when mm-hmm. apps are, are updated, and it's just some of them, they just come out constantly, which yep. in the standpoint of marketing is a good thing to do. Uh, from a marketing standpoint, actually mm-hmm. planning to do multiple releases keeps your software fresh in the... Uh, the user's mind. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay, cool. It's cool. It's like a friend coming back and saying, how are you? Constantly. You're like, oh, cool. You're keeping up to date. Oh, you're keeping up to date. And so, yeah, I mean, on one hand it is on, on the other hand, you know, if you're do, doing all your downloads on your data plan and not on Wi-Fi, it can be big. Oh yeah. Well, I have that turned off. Yeah, I do too. So my apps update only went on Wi-Fi. Yeah. So, I mean, FileMaker <clears throat> never in their history of me using FileMaker for 20 plus years have i seen so many updates within a span of time in the past you know year right from filemaker yeah i don't think so either granted a lot because of security but uh yeah they're not throwing in really any features they're just addressing issues 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, V releases are always about addressing issues, I think, pretty much. So, and it seems like really the big feature, the big feature, <laughs> issue that's addressed in V9 is the security and more specifically the certificate. So back in the day, um, it seemed like FileMaker really advertised that the security, the encryption between server and client was a feature that you can enable with one checkbox. And they never talked about custom certificates. It was just click this checkbox and all the traffic between your client and server are encrypted at 128-bit encryption. Um, and that's all you need to do. You never need to worry about security. Right. And the message now is don't do that. Uh, if you're going to want security, go buy a third-party certificate because the one that comes with FileMaker is a self-signed certificate that has a known security hack and is used for testing only. That's right. the very strong message I see. Well, my guess is that they're, they, due to all of the security issues that have come about, they're, you know, they're wise to absolve themselves of any issues. Mm -hmm. uh, so what is a certificate? Um, the certificate is basically, it is the whole SSL process is both symmetric and asymmetric because one is slower, the asymmetric, I believe, and then the symmetric is a lot faster. So the premise of a key is, you know, if you, I'm going to visit your house and you gave me a key to your house, that is a shared mm -hmm. key between us. Um, the asymmetric, I believe, is... Um, we both have our own keys, and then we also have uh, a pair to those. I give you my public key, you give me your public key, and then we can exchange information based on that public key matching up with the, the, the private key. So are these two different types of certificates that you can buy, or is it just the way the whole system works? No, it's, that's the whole way that the system works. The certificate itself is basically, it's... Somebody somewhere says, okay, I am the authority in terms of saying what is valid and what's not valid. So there are companies that are providers, VeriSign, uh, Semantic, large, larger companies mm -hmm. that basically go daddy. They've become these places that say, okay, when I tell you that Matt Navar is Matt Navar, even though he hands you an ID that says, you know, Juan Gestapo, <laughs> Matt Navar is Matt Navar. He's not, he can't pretend to be somebody else. And so that's where these certificates come from, these authorities, and they call them certificate authorities. So mm -hmm. you've always been able to make yourself your own authority. You can always say who you are. I can say mm -hmm. my name is Chris, but unless you go to the hospital and the hospital says, no, here's a certificate, it is Matt. It's not, he can't, it doesn't matter if he tells you he's Chris, he's Matt. That's how you know whether something's being spoofed or not. So FileMaker did mm -hmm. their own self-signed certificate, and it wasn't validating against any authority other than FileMaker. Mm -hmm. Now, what happened is I don't know, but I'm guessing that their, secured, their certificate became exposed through, I don't know, it may have been part of one of the SSL things, Heartbleed, Poodle, one mm -hmm. of the other things that happened. It may not have been. It may have been just been exposed. But what happens is the data in transit, if you're able to actually look at that data and unencrypt it because you have access to the uh, key, then you can basically look at things that are passed between the wire, whether it's information or whether it's passwords. Well, see, I thought the issue was that... Um well, the, the, I think that, first of all, to clarify one important thing, I think the really important thing with the, with the certificate is... It's, it's issued by a small number of agencies, and 
So there's no agency that can give you a false one. Well, and it's can. a pairing. It's a well, yeah, maybe, but it's a pairing between a specific website address and this long key. It's long, like a UUID times ten or something. A long piece of text. The, um, you're talking about the the signature, the hash, right? So you've got SHA one and you've got SHA two. SHA two, which uses two fifty six bit encryption, is what mm-hmm. most things are going. Most things are standardizing on now. And that's actually also what FileMaker quietly did is they increased the encryption from 128-bit to 256-bit. I'm not sure if that was done in 12 or 13, but it's now 256-bit encryption, which is good. My client required it, and it was an issue before. (laughs) Yeah, only certain uh, they – it was in V5 that they only supported some uh, 256 cert providers. But see, here's – Here's the key with FileMaker. The way, because I've installed the certificates on servers, the way that FileMaker manages, there's a chain of trust. So basically, in order to know once you get a certificate, so when you contact a um, secure location, it doesn't matter whether it's a web website or whether you're connecting from FileMaker client to FileMaker server. When you make that initial connection, there's a handshake. That handshake says, okay, I'm going to pass you back this certificate and that certificate is going to validate against the root certificates often, well, from the web standpoint, the root certificates that you have on your machine. Now, with regards to FileMaker, they have what are called the root certificates and also intermediate and intermediary certificates stored within the FileMaker server application. You are not able to install root certificates or intermediary certificates which belong to the root certificate authorities. We're talking about GoDaddy, GeoTrust, all of the big guys. If you were able to install your own root uh, certificates and intermediaries, you could basically use your own self-signed certificate. But you can't. FileMaker has that pretty much locked down and they only authorize whatever they've included into their key store. And that they've got a, a, a list of those on a help article somewhere. And when you install your certificate, your certificate has to fall within the chain of the allowed certificate authorities. And those are the ones that they've listed. Right. So even if you self-sign or if you go get a certificate from somebody that is not actually on their approved list, it won't work. And that also applies to clients as well. So they've, they've embedded root certificates and intermediaries within Go and within server as well. And we can't currently control those. So you have to, you have to follow their rules and use their providers currently. So as long, as long as you do, then you'll basically be secure all the way through. This update has another really interesting thing about it, which is that there's a time release between client and server it seems as though if you upgraded your client to V9, either FileMaker Go or FileMaker Pro, but your server that you're accessing is not running V9, that you would not be able to connect to it. Correct. And, I and don't, that's new. I that's don't know for, what that has to do, whether it has to do with um, how they changed the communication layer or whether it's just purely a certificate issue with regards to the authentication and the uh, root certificate and intermediates. So if that's all they updated, in fact, I was talking to Joey. There's a way that you can find out on server. FileMaker creates a file called server custom, which is basically a combination of your unencrypted private key 
and the certificate that you get back from the certificate authority. And so it creates uh, both of those. Now, if you use FileMaker's little command line tool to create the certificate, it will create the private key for you. Or if you know what you're doing with something like OpenSSL on the command line, you can create your own private key and then import both the private key and the certificate you back, get back from the provider. Mm-hmm. The way that you can find out what FileMaker did in between V5 and V9 is you basically just do a signature check, either MD5 or a SHA-1, on the actual files that FileMaker's provided. Uh, You can do it on their server.pem, which is their own certificate for FileMaker server, or you can do it on this little file called the key store. And the key store, I'm presuming, Mm -hmm. is what actually stores the uh, root and intermediaries. This is my guess is where they're storing them. But you can't get into the key store to find out what you know roots certificates and intermediary certificates they're actually storing. They've got that locked down as well. Mm. So my guess is that uh, they needed to update those to support what other certificate authority providers were doing, which is updating from the older, weaker SHA-1 to SHA-2. That's, and that's all my guess. They could have changed the networking protocol and how things communicate behind the scenes so that V9 communicating with V9 communicates totally differently than V5, but, mm-hmm. you know, we'd have to ask them or they'd have to tell people. They're sort of always quiet about anything security-related. And it's not an open system, obviously, because BioMaker's proprietary. Right. So... Yeah, on one hand, it'd be good to know, but on the other hand, if it just works, I, at one level, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Especially if it, it's a security thing. But, you know, when we talk to IT people, which you and I both do, it, it's good if we actually really know what the issue is and what the relative risk is and what was actually addressed and what the importance is of upgrading servers. You know, because some of the clients we have, they don't like to upgrade. And FileMaker is kind of giving you a short time, like two weeks, to upgrade your server. So if you've got clients running on, uh, for example, a FileMaker Go client, they're automatically going to get updated to V9 when it comes out. I don't think it's even out quite yet. But when it does, if the server's not V9, it's just not going to work. Yeah. that uh, is if, uh, the, if the secure checkbox is on. That's one of the downsides of, uh, of keeping up with security. I mean, yeah. all, as soon as there's a, an exploit, then... They know that people can take advantage of it. So, yeah. In fact, um, one thing that bugs me is, and this may this may address the problems that other people have with regards to their FileMaker server, and it may give them uh, information so that they don't actually worry about it. When I was upgrading the server that you, one of the servers you and I are on, what happened is we went out and we got a new certificate, and we went to GeoTrust. That's our mm-hmm. certific- certificate authority. They issued us a SHA-2 certificate. Now, a SHA-2 uh, certificate is 256-bit encryption. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's pretty much, they're not going to be issuing SHA-1 certs much anymore because they're not considered, uh, you know, they're obviously not as secure. Mm-hmm. FileMaker, down in the very bottom of your FileMaker window, if you're using an SSL connection uh, over 505003 with FileMaker, mm-hmm. there's a little lock down there. And that little lock is supposed to be green if you're using a supported certificate. Now, we are using a supported certificate from GeoTrust. It is a GeoTrust Quick SSL. But yet, the lock does not go green. It stays gray, 
and which basically means your connection is secure when you're using FileMaker and passing FileMaker data back and forth between server, but it doesn't go green, which means it couldn't um, verify up the chain. I am assuming that FileMaker has support for what, what are they called these intermediate certificates that are SHA-1 based and not SHA-256. Because if you go get that particular 256 cert from certain providers, if it isn't, if the intermediate and the root certificate aren't the valid ones that FileMaker matches within its chain, then you don't get the green lock, which is sort of crummy. But if you look at FileMaker's um, function, get connection attributes, it will tell you that yes, well, the gray lock means that yes, you are uh, communicating securely. It's just not the green lock, which is what you'd like. But if you look at the get connection attributes, it will tell you what the common name is of the certificate, the common name being basically analogous to the uh, domain name. So on yours, it was uh, uh, your domain name, and that actually shows up. And then it also shows you who the certificate provider is. And so if you get the connection attributes and it shows you that the common name is the name of the certificate that you got, which is typically your domain name, then you know you're secure. You just don't get the green lock. And that is annoying because Joey, yeah. Joey had called me up. He was updating other servers. And mm -hmm. he was saying, dude, I can't get the green lock. I said, I know. I think it's because FileMaker is just playing keep up and they don't have the right intermediate certificates within their key store on server. And so until they update that stuff... You're just not going to get the green lock. You just have to basically know, okay, my connection is secured. There's a lot of stuff that FileMaker has to do. I mean, it'd be nice if they put the hands into IT and admins, but they've got it locked down. Their key store is closed. So not a whole lot you can do. Yep. Anyway, security, security, boring stuff. Oh, I don't know. I think it's important. Necessary stuff, yeah, but... Uh, I just tested that, by the way, in 13v5 and 13v9, and it's neither one of them gives me the green lock. Right. But if you go into the data viewer and you put in get connection attributes, you will see the name of uh, your, your uh, domain name, and you'll also see the uh, certificate provider. It'll hmm. say peer in brackets, and then it'll say, okay, you know, here, you've, your, your connection is secured, and it's secured based on this domain name, so it's reading the valid cert, it's just not authenticating all the way up the chain. Yep. And that's, I just did that right now, and it says, yep, peer certificate, common name, CA issuer is GeoTrust. Yep. And it, and it just bugs you. You're just like, FileMaker, you say you're going to give me a green lock. I want to say a green lock. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just the UI gives you that little comfort feeling. It's like, ah, I've got the green lock. Nope, sorry. <laughs> But it's still secure. Yeah. <laughs> At least you know that. That's true. That's good. Let's see. Um, we'll probably talk about security more in the future, but let's transition. That, that means push the button for transitioning. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. Dude, I'm a child of the 80s. There will be a point that that's not funny, but it's still funny. <laughs> Oh, just wait until you tell me something. I say, oh, no, Matt, I'm sorry. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write that one down, and I've got to throw that into the trash. Oh, that's funny. That didn't sound like a trash throw. Oh, but sorry. The writing, I like the writing sound. That's yeah. good. Yeah, I'll just crumple it up. That's, there you go. Perfect. <laughs> I need, to, I need a, that same application so I can put my own sound effects in. Right, and feed yours <laughs> in. I'll have to give you the, uh, all the lowdown. Yep. 
So let's see. Um, selector connector is something that uh, was talked about at Pause on Air. I'm sure it's going to be talked about again coming up at DevCon. It's this. Um, it's pretty cool. Uh, maybe maybe actually it would be a really good thing to get deep into it by talking to Todd Geist and uh, Jason Young, the two people who really are on on about it. And is it was it Todd's invention or do they do it together? I'm not sure the history of it. Um, from my understanding, from having talked with Todd the brief amounts that I have, it was sort of uh, an evolution from both of them. Either they were both thinking about similar concepts at the same time, but I know that they were, I'm guessing because of Gozink potentially, there was some collaborative crossover. Pure guess. Uh, I have no idea. Mm. But they had exchanged ideas. And so uh, then Todd went to push it out first, and then Jason pushed out an article after that. And so um, they're they're both to be credited, as far as mm-hmm. I'm concerned. I don't know. It's to me the what they've done is they've evolved an idea that has existed for a long time, but they evolved the idea in a way that is sort of one of those ahas. It's like oh, exactly. I can yeah. because of the fact because. Basically, it boils down to this. Because mm-hmm. of the mere fact that you can have a Cartesian join, some people call them a cross join, it's the one with the X, mm-hmm. connecting to a table occurrence, and then that table occurrence can connect to any other number of table occurrences, mm-hmm. and they actually add one in between. The one that they add in between is called selector. That's the key. Mm-hmm. But, uh, well, I mean, you can do this without an extra table and table occurrence. You don't have to have this. The whole fundamental premise is... All we're going to do is we're going to have a Cartesian join to one table occurrence, which can universally be connected to all other table occurrences. So basically, it just makes everything connected to everything. And what makes this really right. light, lightweight is the fact that because of the table that you're using is, it doesn't matter what you call it, they call it a connector table. I've always called it in the past globals. And in a globals table, you have nothing but globals. Mm-hmm. And so what's nice about this is when you think about it, it really makes sense. If you have a table and the only field type it has in it are globals, then the record can never be locked because all globals exist within local memory space. Exactly. There is no reason for FileMaker to actually communicate with the server with regards to globals. So if there are no local fields in a given table, then you'll never have a record lock. Now, because there's only one record within this table, it can be called, again, connector is what they're calling it, or globals, which that's the premise that I'm saying has been around for a long time, is basically just keeping a table Mm -hmm. of globals, then you have a really lightweight connection. You're only connecting to one record, and that one record has no local fields, doesn't communicate with server, but yet because of the connection, you can see anything in any other table occurrence that's connected right. to that table. Right. So you're down on the plumbing, but let's let's take a step back and talk about why you would do this. So imagine you've got a solution that's got three togs that are not connected at the moment. Like companies to people to invoices is one. Another one is invoices to invoice line items and products. And another tog would be uh, sales reps and then like uh, you know sales for those sales reps or payments or whatever. And typically, like in solutions I would do, I would never connect those togs together. But what Selector Connector does is it actually connects each of those three togs to one tog, which is your global table, your selector table. So now 
on the graph, they're connected. And it, that, that's the only thing about selector connector that I don't like is it just sort of rubs me the wrong way of, con of connecting otherwise disconnected togs. But here's the huge benefit. From that selector tog, the selector um, table occurrence, you'd connect again to like your reps table, which would then give you the ability to have a value list on either on any of your other tables that show you only reps that are related in some interesting way to your, either your company or your invoice or your, um, I guess the rep table, you wouldn't need to do that. But like from your company or your invoice, you have to have a valid relationship from that context to be able to see a value list on it. And that you had in the past, I would have made redundant little structures just for that value list. But now you don't have to. Correct. So value list data, portal data based on globals, and a lot of other structures in FileMaker. Now you can actually do with this technique that you could not do easily any other way. Well, for That's me, the reason it was, for it was the me. second one that you said. Portals. Portals. Yeah, portals. Portals and being able to see data. That's the one thing where. Mm -hmm. Where Anchor Buoy, everything is separated from everything else. Mm -hmm. Once you add a common table occurrence, such as this globals or connectors mm -hmm. are calling it, you're doing what you were already doing before. You're just not spreading globals around. Where formerly, maybe you had a global field within your people table, and it was selected person. Mm -hmm. And you're basically, that's going to be the ID of the current person that you're selecting. And that allows you to interact with data based on the relationship you know to mm -hmm. that well if you go up through a globals table you now only have to have that global in existence in one place in your whole solution you don't need to have a global field in your people table in your invoices table and in mm -hmm. you know sales reps or all other tables and layouts right. because it exists within the globals and by the mere fact of that connection that one cartesian join it can see whatever's connected to that globals table. And what's cool is you can create as many globals as you need. Now, the only thing that, that Todd and Jason are doing is they're creating a mental separation here of distinct types of globals. So both the connector and the selector in their model are basically mm -hmm. tables with one record with globals. And they're just moving some of their globals from this connector table over to one that they're calling selector. Mm-hmm. And it's just a mental separation. It's just saying, okay, solution-wide, across the whole universe of my solution, if I'm going to have a selection that is a person, and I'm going to have a selection that is an invoice, and a selection that is you know, an order, I'm going to put those global fields in this a dedicated table called selector. Mm -hmm. But you can have them in the... the it doesn't matter where the globals are. They can all be in one table, or you can segment them out. And they're segmenting them out to make it easier to uh, understand and perceive the graph. Right. And I think that the, the thing that makes the selector connector thing worth talking about is that they've actually codified it, put a video together to say, this is how you do it, and sort of distilled it down to the elements that makes it really easy and flexible. I love it when I see things like that happen in FileMaker world. Yeah. It's inspiring. You've done that a ton with your videos. Um, we actually just released one on MSN Media that's uh, along those same lines. It's a really, really simple take on uh, geocoding. So that the two things that you need to do there are you need to, like if you have an address, you need to calculate the Latin long and store it um, with the address record. And then you can plot 
multiple points on a map um, <clears throat> using uh, the Google Map API. Yep. And we saw, we looked at a whole bunch of different ways of doing it. Some of them are really powerful, but they weren't really very distilled down to the minimum components. Nice. So if you go to msnmedia.com, you can look at the blog. Sorry, we just relaunched our site, so it's our one blog entry <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> but we'll have more. Hey. Um, yeah. And you can download this and, and take it apart. And we've, you know, I, I we spent a lot of time, way more time actually distilling it than we did developing it. Oh, nice. Well, I mean, I whenever it comes to coding, I just read an article the other day. And it made me feel better about the amount of time that it takes to actually implement and refine some things. It said that coding was more about thinking than it is actually about typing. Oh, so true. And, and that actually, I was like, you know what? No joke. I'm thinking about how to solve the problem more than actually implementing it. And it's funny, I get antsy when I notice I'm sitting there and I'm like, dude, I've been working on this for a couple of hours. I need to advance. I need to move on. But the problem isn't solved yet. It's not refined. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, and then, you know, that level of refinement is very different depending upon what kind of project you're working on. If it's a quick and dirty solution that's going to be used by, you know, two people or who are good file maker people and don't and can work around little issues, then it doesn't need to be refined very much. Yeah. If it's going to be like a vertical market solution or a, a, a sample file you're going to release to the world, then refinement is everything. Yep, totally. In fact, I just saw, uh, I'll throw this out there for the listeners, I just uh, took a look at a technique. I'm always hunting for little techniques that people are doing. And there's one that I just saw from uh, Saliant. And I unfortunately, I'll open it up here, see if it'll take me to the URL so I can give it to people. But it's called Hamburger Menu, which was a pretty uh, <laughs> funny name. But it's basically that little menu that you see with the uh, the three lines up in the upper uh, left-hand corner of a solution, you know, mm -hmm. mobile design where you tap it and then it comes out with a menu. Mm -hmm. A really cool, creative uh, approach to um, bringing out a menu. He, I hadn't even thought of this before. So uh, I, think it's, I think his name is Mike Duncan. Let me see here if it's got the... Uh, I can't find the... There's a click right there. All right, so what's maybe. it do? What's the UI do? Um, you click on this little, uh, the little three lines, which is the menu. It opens a popover, mm -hmm. which then uses a slider to show the animations of a menu sliding out from the side. Now, what I've done the slider before, and mm -hmm. I've put the slider directly on the layout. Now, when you put the slider over all of the rest of your UI elements, it obscures mm -hmm. those elements and makes your layout difficult to work with. Mm -hmm. What was really cool and brilliant about this technique is the fact that he did it in a popover. And what I didn't even clue into about popovers is the, a popover consists of two objects, your button and the actual popover. Sure. You can make the button itself hidden by going to the data tab and just put in true. Just mm -hmm. hide the button. But that doesn't mean the popover is not going to display. The, the popover will still display. So formerly, my approach was to make the button absolutely small. You know, shrink it to like one pixel width and set it completely transparent. But that then right. hides it on your layout so that you have to know that it's there. This was just brilliant. You could make the popover button as big as you want. Just set the data setting to hide. In fact, he made his yellow like mm -hmm. a nice bright yellow. So when you go into layout mode, you see this big yellow button that says hamburger. 
<laughs> and but it's hidden. It hides mm-hmm. when you're in browse mode. And then sure. when the popover opens, then you have access to show the slider and slide the animations back and forth as much as you want. It's it's awesome. I love hmm. it. A very very cool use of uh, popovers in terms of hiding them and then using sliders. I like that. We use popover buttons all the time for menus. Like, for example, in the top left corner, you'd put an icon, which would be like the logo of the company or whatever. Typically, that's what you'd see on a website. And then if you tap on that, a a popover would come up nearly full screen, mostly opaque, but like 5% transparent, so you can still sort of see behind it. And then whatever navigation buttons and menu buttons or whatever you need to have on there would be on there. It works really beautifully for iOS and for and for desktop, I think. But this is this is like one step better than that, or two steps better than that, by giving you some cool animation and um, and giving you the option of having the button itself be invisible, which I hadn't thought of. So then you just do like a go to object command and go to an object on the uh, on the popover. Oh and yeah. The trick yeah. there is you can't go to the popover itself; you have to go to an object on the popover. Yeah, that's actually. Uh that one, I don't use that a whole lot, but I mean, I should put explicitly named objects in places where, you know, FileMaker, when you use the go-to object, is going to navigate to that object, you know, and whether it's on a different tab, a different popover, wherever it is. Yeah, I, that's awesome. I love that. Oh, I should, um, here, let me tell people how I actually find this. Uh, for anyone who doesn't use Google's qualifiers, their little search term qualifiers. This is what's really cool. I didn't know where this hamburger thing was. He didn't have a link as far as I could tell within the file. He would go to the mm-hmm. general Salient website. But if you go to uh, Salient Consulting, for example, I was on the salientconsulting.com website and I was like, I want this hamburger. What I do is I simply just go into the URL bar and presuming the engine is set for Google to search. I simply just go to the beginning of the URL, take off the HTTP, I typed in the word hamburger, and then you put Google site qualifier of site, S-I-T-E, colon, mm-hmm. which obviously now references to hamburger, space, site, colon, and then the name of the domain that you were on. And that tells Google to specifically search just that site for whatever keyword you had just typed in. So for sure. me, it pulled up uh, the article right away. I don't do that much, but I have done that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, being able to search a site specifically if you know who it's from makes it a lot easier to search based on a keyword. Oh, it says Mike Duncan. I don't know if I called that. I used a different name. Sorry, Mike, I apologize. But that's really uh, really cool, and you hmm. can get the sample there of that hamburger menu. I will play with that because I have not seen it. Awesome. Well, what else we got to talk about, or should we wrap it up? You got um, wrap up music? <laughs> do I have wrap up music? Uh, Not rap music, mind you, which also is fine. We I don't can play know. some of that. <laughs> I don't actually have. I can play the same uh, same music that I have uh, for the intro on the outro, but <laughs> on the outro. I love that. That outro is a word now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. An outro direction. I think 40 minute, 43 minutes is a good investment if anybody's been able to stick around this long. We can always save We're, stuff for the next one. We will do that. All right. Well, always great to talk to you, Matt. All right. Always great talking to you. All right. Talk soon. Mm-hmm.